electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. We are just off session lows right now. The Dow earlier dropping more than 700 points amid reports of more intense fighting in southern Ukraine. We've got the latest news on that front. We're also going to speak with Mark Mobius about how all of this plays out for the markets, emerging markets especially. He likes gold right now. He's got several ideas. And oil has pulled back after hitting a 14-year high. But can U.S. oil companies really ramp up production fast enough to keep prices down, especially as bipartisan leaders have just reached a deal on a new bill that could ban Russian energy imports? Before we get to all of that, let's start with Dom Chu and the latest market numbers. Dom? All right, so you mentioned those numbers down about 700-some points at the lows of the session. That happened, by the way, just in the last half hour here. So that gives you some idea of where we are in the overall trade so far to the midday session. We're down about 600 points for the Dow Industrials right now, down about one and three quarters percent. Similar percentage declines for the S&P 500, 42.39, the last trade there, down about two percent. And the Nasdaq Composite underperforming, but not by much, off a little over two percent, 285 points to the downside, 13,027, the last trade there. It's also playing out on the macro side of things. Interest rates very much in focus. A lot of attention being paid to what's happening with the 10-year Treasury note yield and its relationship to shorter-term Treasury rates, namely the two-year Treasury note yield, it doesn't matter which part of the yield curve, so to speak, that you're looking at. The idea here is is that the gap is narrowing between interest rates on the long end and interest rates on the short end. I'm showing you right now the two-year versus the 10-year spread. You can see here 22 basis points is about where we're at right now. The reason why I'm showing you this three-year chart is that we are now at the lowest levels in terms of that spread going all the way back probably about a couple years now at this stage, going back to the early part of 2020. This is important because it signals maybe what could be a slowing economic environment going forward. We know that rising fuel costs are part of that story, energy costs, food costs, and everything else. Now, that also may be playing out in what's happening with the travel and leisure trade. Some of the worst performers in the S&P 500 today are names associated with travel. Think of United Airlines, down 11% right now. Norwegian Cruise Lines, down 8%. Same with Live Nation. Wynn Resorts, down 7%. And 6% for booking holdings as well. That consumer discretionary trade, that travel and leisure, that spend my disposable income trade, taking a big hit, certainly lately. And then one other place to keep an eye on is the outsized mover of the day. And this is all driven not by fundamentals necessarily, but a lot of chatter. Bed Bath & Beyond is up 30%. Ryan Cohen, the chairman of GameStop, the founder of Chewy.com and his his venture arm, has now taken a near 10% stake in the company, making them a top five shareholder. They're pushing for change. They're going to be activist investors. They want to unlock value. That's the reason why it's up 30%. But at the highs of the session, Kel, we were up over $30 per share. That was good for around an 85% gain. You can see they're 31% right now, well off the highs, but still a kind of more fundamental-ish type story taking hold in this big macro trade that's happening right now, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. It's not all macro, but that's most of it. Dom, thank you very much. 
Now, my next guest has worked in emerging markets for more than four decades. He's seen Russia's currency collapse before. He's witnessed globalization and now its apparent reversal. And he sees several opportunities and safe havens for investors right now. Joining us is Mark Mobius. He's the founding partner at Mobius Capital Partners. Mark, great to have you on a day like this. What is your knee-jerk reaction? What are markets telling us about the shape that the U.S. Uh, and global growth are about to take? Well, the interesting thing is that you've got a number of winners as well as losers. You know, a lot of people think all the markets are down. That's not the case. Uh, for example, in emerging markets, Brazil is up substantially. South Africa, of all places, is up. Now, of course, I can explain that because of raw material prices, maybe. But uh, generally speaking, it's a great opportunity to pick and choose uh, the, the winners and losers. There'll be winners and losers. My guess is as a result of what's happening in Europe, uh, China will be a winner because Russia uh, will have to trade more with China. They'll have to depend on China more and more. So uh, we have to be very, very careful in uh, looking at these markets and not becoming too pessimistic about what's happening. Yeah, fair enough. If I can ask you just one more about the U.S. in general. Do you think this economy is going to slow? You know, what, what's going to happen with the dollar? What does that mean for some of the, you know, the fund flows that you're kind of watching around the world? Um, if China is going to hold up relatively well, maybe we can too. It sounds like that's not necessarily, you know, a slowdown story so much as maybe still an inflation story that we're going to be grappling with in the months to come. Well, one thing you've got to remember is that just because there's inflation doesn't mean that the market has to go down. Uh, if you look at history, you see that inflation is not correlated with the S&P 500, for example. Of course. It's correlated with fixed income market. But uh, what you have to do is figure that where are people going to go as a safe haven from Europe? That's America. America is the place to be. Uh, the U.S. dollar is the place to be. So I think uh, the, the U.S. will do fairly well. Of course, the market is not doing well. It's down. But I don't think it's going to stay down. I think you're going to see recovery. And I think inflation uh, with those companies that are able to price uh, their products in the inflationary environment They'll do very, very well. And of course, you know, there are a lot of them like that in that, that category. Yeah. And that's good news for our debt. Obviously, it's going to keep those longer term borrowing costs down. So on the dollar, you think that those attra that attraction of flows is going to keep the dollar higher. Isn't that normally a headwind for a lot of these emerging markets? Well, yeah, there is uh, in some cases a headwind for some emerging markets. But as I mentioned, in dollar terms, Brazil and uh, South Africa are up. That's even accounting uh, the local currencies, which are usually not that strong. But uh, uh, it's really a mixed picture. But generally speaking, in times of stress, people go to the U.S. dollar. All right, fair enough. Let's talk about some of the real specifics where you do see opportunities right now. They include some countries, gold, which I'm seeing more and more people look at charts and get excited about. And so maybe you can give us a sense of where you think the best opportunities are right now. Well, as you know, I've been a gold bull for quite some time, yeah. but I don't recommend people put all their money into gold. Uh, I'm saying about 10% in gold is fine. Uh, physical gold, that is not uh, ATFs, ETFs or anything like that. Uh, but the other area, of course, is equities. You've got to be in equities in order to beat inflation. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. And of course, you've got to be diversified. What's happening now in Europe teaches a big lesson of diversification. So those people who had money in Brazil and South Africa, in parts of Asia are doing fine and not being hurt so much. And of course, American stocks, some of the American stocks that have exposure to those countries is also a place to be. 
Uh, but I would say uh, equities, first of all, and second of all, companies that have no debt or very little debt, because with interest rates going up, companies with high debt are going to be in trouble. Good point, because people might think, hey, we got inflation, they can inflate that debt away. But of course, if their borrowing costs go up, not so much. Let me just repeat this to make sure everyone is on the same page. You say equities are the place to be. You told us why you think the U.S. is attractive in the U.S. market. You think China can do pretty well. And I noticed that the Hang Seng Index today just closed at about a six-year low. I don't know if you want to add any comments about that or about Chinese equities in general. Yeah, Chinese equities have really been very bad in the last year. And that's because of the property problems. You know, uh, the Chinese economy is very much property-oriented, and the property companies have been in big trouble because of the debts. But uh, the Chinese government is determined to have 5 or 6% growth. In an economy of that size, it's quite remarkable. And what they're going to do is put a lot of money into infrastructure and boost up uh, the market generally by having lower interest rates. Interestingly enough, uh, while the U.S. is raising rates, China is lowering rates. So uh, I think this bear market that we've seen in China probably won't last. There'll be opportunities in China as well. Okay. Final question, then tell me again about Southeast Asia, why you think places like Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, you know, people are not feeling like they want to really walk out on the risk ledge right now. Why should they look at those areas? Well, if you look at the performance, Thailand is moving sideways. It's not really been hit by what's happening in Europe. So uh, if you look at South Asia, Southeast Asia is sort of a, I don't use the word safe haven, but that's probably appropriate given what's happening in Europe. So it's a place to be diversified and away from Europe. And some of these companies in Thailand, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam are doing very, very well. High profitability in dollar terms. So there are great opportunities in some of these countries. And I said that was the last one, but I'm actually going to sneak in one more. It's actually the most obvious one. Tell me what you would make of Russian equities right now. Um, and the collapse of the Russian ruble that we continue to watch play out? Well, I mean, uh, usually we would be bargain hunters. When things like this happen, we want to go in, but not now, because what's happening is that the U.S. and the West, Europe, is shutting off the entire financial system in Russia from the West. So in other words, even if you want to buy Russian stocks, who is going to hold it for you? None of the banks are going to be holding those stocks for you as a custodian. And how are you going to get the money out? The rubles is in big trouble. They don't want to trade. Uh, the West doesn't want to trade with them. So I would say you just got to forget about Russia for at least maybe a year. It depends on what happens in Ukraine, but uh, it doesn't look good. It's not a good idea to get into Russia now. Yeah, that's for sure. Mark Mobius, thank you for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Joining me with Mobius Capital Partners. All right. Meantime, the third round of talks between Russia and Ukraine in Belarus have concluded with Ukraine saying that no significant results on a truce and ceasefire have been accomplished. Let's get to Kayla Tausche. She's in Washington with the latest today. Kayla. Hey, Kelly, perhaps that's not surprising, considering that what Russia was asking for in those ceasefire talks were all non-starters for the West. Expectations are low for any future terms that will hold. A senior defense official says 100 percent of the troops massed at the border are now inside Ukraine as Russia continues shelling major cities, despite pledges last week to pause that violence to allow civilians to escape. The indiscriminate violence drawing new condemnations from world leaders, including the Secretary of State, who's in Latvia today, beginning to call Russia's actions war crimes. The world is saying to Russia, stop these attacks immediately. 
let the food and medicine in, let the people out safely, and end this war of choice against Ukraine. President Biden speaking for about 80 minutes this morning with the leaders of the UK, France and Germany as allies debate how to support Ukraine, which has been imploring the West for aircraft and how to further punish Russia. The U.S. is likely to move forward with a ban on Russian oil, with the U.K. and Japan considering similar moves, according to sources. But the European Union, heavily reliant on Russian energy, is not expected to take part, I'm told. As for when that possible ban could be announced, Kelly, I'm told it's still a live discussion. Kayla, real quickly, when you say not expected to take part, I think I saw separate headlines about Europe trying to come to some kind of a pushback on accepting Russian energy imports, obviously. So what's the distinction here? Well, the, the issue, Kelly, is that within the European Union, any action on sanctions needs to apply to the entire block of 27 countries. So if a country like Germany uh, cannot get by without Russian energy, it's not possible for other individual European nations to announce their own ban on Russian energy. So it's either all or nothing for the European Union. And that's part of the, the, the issue that's really hard for the negotiators to square here. That's one of the reasons why uh, you've seen Canada go it alone. You've seen the UK and Japan suggest that they are still discussing this. But when I talk to people uh, here inside the US, they say that you know they are willing to go forward on a standalone basis, although they acknowledge it would help if there were others on board too, Kelly. Fascinating. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. My next guest is an expert in international security, in negotiations, and in conflict resolution. She warns that things are going to get a lot worse as Russian forces move into urban areas of Ukraine and that Putin has no interest in backing down. Let's bring in Monica Duffy-Toft, an international politics professor at Tufts University. It's great to have you here today, and uh, we're starting to see this, aren't we, in terms of the Russian forces moving into urban areas? Yes, Kelly. I mean, the, the intention initially was to basically conquer Kharkiv. And as we see, uh, we're many days into this war now, and they haven't even been able to get Kharkiv. They've gotten Kershaw, but if you look at the size of Kershaw, it's substantially smaller. Uh, Maripol, they've been shelling and bombing. They, they're threatening now to go into Odessa. But the one that they really wanted was Kharkiv, which they expected to roll over, uh, and then, of course, Kiev. And so given the Russian military's uh, conduct of war when it comes to urban areas, and we've seen this in the past, and we can talk most uh, recently in Syria, but then also in Grozny, uh, it doesn't really have a strategy for going into urban areas. Uh, so it's going to get really, really bad in the next couple of days. Do you think that Lviv is a key area to watch? Because my understanding is that's how a lot of the Ukrainian population is getting out uh, to places like Poland and how a lot of supplies are still coming into the country. What should we expect on that front? So for now, it doesn't appear, if you look at the movement of troops, it doesn't appear as if that's part of it. However, Odessa will allow, if they can get Odessa, to move up to the northwest. Uh, and it would be really bad if Putin and company and his military moved into Lviv, because that really is sort of the heartland of Ukraine. Uh, and moreover, for cultural sites, religious sites, and uh, Kiev is the same. But at this point, I don't think Lviv is under threat. Uh, it seems as if they're trying to concentrate their forces by actually taking Kharkiv, continuing their operations in the south from Maripol and Odessa, uh, and then also 
continuing to try to, as we say, soften up Kiev so they can move into Kiev and hopefully get uh, the capital city. But the Ukrainians have, have shown themselves to be extraordinarily formidable in this fight uh, and have pushed back and repelled a bit. So it'll be a question over the next couple of days if he gets Odessa uh, and if he sort of uh, lands Kharkiv and Maripol, and then, and then what happens with Kiev or so, Kiev. So as you say, and obviously as we're witnessing, Putin mm -hmm. has no interest in backing down. As people mm -hmm. possibly play the energy card, what is he going to do if backed into that corner? Um, what, what are your thoughts? Well, look, Putin is backed into a corner. The question is whether he realizes he's backed into a corner. We have never seen a sanctions regime like this before. Uh, we have, you know, five states that sort of uh, 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 didn't vote against the UN resolution, uh, one of whom was Russia itself, and then Belarus, which is basically under President Lukashenko in Putin's pocket. So the question is, is whether Putin actually understands that he has now been backed into a corner in terms of the general sanctions. He does understand about energy. Uh, and, and unfortunately, right now, energy prices are at their top. Your, the prior program was just talking about that, which is helping Russia if it can trade out its oil, although that's becoming difficult. So even if that doesn't happen, other states don't want to touch or buy Russian oil for fear of the, their hands becoming dirty. Uh, and so one of the critical things over the next couple of days, let's hope it's just a couple of days and not weeks, is getting information to Putin and getting information to those who are backing Putin that this is a really, really uh, a set of serious um, of sanctions that are absolutely not going to just harm the Russian state, uh, but also him and his interests. And I'm not convinced yet, Kelly, that he knows that. Hmm. All right, Monica, we'll leave it there for now. Check back in with you soon, uh, we hope to. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Kelly. Monica Duffy-Toff joining me from Tufts. Coming up with WTI crude oil jumping as high as $130 a barrel overnight, what's the next move for the U.S. oil industry? Can it pump more or will we have to hope for more barrels from Venezuela, Iran and Saudi Arabia? Don't forget about the airlines either. They're coming off their worst week in two years as jet fuel prices soar. You saw United down 11 percent today. We're going to look at how that could undermine their reopening revival next. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on stocks. We are off the lows. Dow's down 664. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Oil prices briefly hit $130 a barrel overnight. In fact, we're back up to $120 after coming nearly all the way back uh, earlier this morning. $130 was the highest since 2008 and only $17 off the all-time high. We're all seeing the effect already at the gas pump. The U.S. and other nations are exploring options to cut off Russia's oil supply, with American officials reportedly now in talks with Venezuela to bring more of its crude to market. Data shows Russian crude accounted for just 3% of our oil imports last year, but at 209,000 barrels a day, that was actually the highest figure in at least 20 years. For more, let's bring in Paul Sankey. He's lead analyst at Sankey Research. And Paul, we are seemingly trying to you know, turn to Venezuela and Iran, and, and now some are saying Biden's trying to sort of patch up his relationship with the Saudis. Um, how much of this is going to be international diplomacy, and how much can the U.S. do to make a meaningful difference here? Well, God forbid he would approach the Canadians, right? I mean, it's insane. It really is incredible to think that uh, this is what we've we've come to, you know, after the administration came in and canceled canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. But there it is. Um, in terms of where we go from here, yeah, it's just about the, the planning assumption of the oil companies and whether or not they're prepared to go from, you know, around 60. They plan on around 60 right now. Are they prepared to to buy into the idea that this crisis is going to be sustained for more than months? You know, and that that's a very tough question, obviously, at this stage. After we've only really seems like two years, but it's only been a week, right? Quick question on Keystone: Would that actually have? So we said two hundred thousand barrels a day of Russian oil. Would Keystone have given us that equivalent? How significant would that pipeline have been uh, to the U.S. oil trade? And is it true? I've seen some reports that Canadian crude is actually selling at a bit of a discount right now because it can't be moved. Or are people making too much or too little of the pipeline issue? Well, I think Keystone was more of a signal from the Biden administration insofar as it had originally been uh, delayed by the Obama administration in 2015. So and then, of course, Trump, you know, brought it back. So it, it was already kind of a mess. And and that's the problem is that, you know, what we need is a steady, uh, stable environment that allows these safer, uh, better ways of transporting uh, hydrocarbons to be developed, which obviously is, you know, a, a pipeline system that's that's functional as opposed to using trains or having to get, in, as in the case of New England, gas from Qatar. So ultimately, it kind of would have made a difference, but it's a different. It's very difficult to start saying, you know, when when you start counting. At times, Canadian crude has traded at huge discounts. Um, at the moment, it's trading very, very well, obviously, because the market's so tight. And, yeah. you know, there's obviously such an enormous problem globally. Where do you think those barrels are going to... So there's a couple of options here. Either we do lose the, the Russian barrels and we have to fill that gap. Um, if we cannot, then we'd have to rely on the price to go to whatever it is going to be, $200 a barrel to destroy demand. Or maybe right. we don't go that route. I mean, how likely is it, uh, do you think, at this point that we end up blockading Russian uh, crude imports? Well, listen, Kelly, we, we already lost the barrels pretty much, right? I mean, obviously, there's a flow through. So uh, as I was saying on CNBC last night, as, as Tokyo opened, uh, you've got to remember that oil through pipelines travels at walking pace and tankers do about 25 miles an hour, 20, 20 nautical knots. You know, everything moves slowly, but it's a constant chain. So as you lose supply, it takes a long time to feed through. And, and that's what we're facing at the moment. But what was really stunning, as you know, is that the sanctions were quite explicitly not to interrupt energy flows, and they haven't for natural gas. But the world oil industry basically just dropped Russian oil like a bad habit. Yeah. And for example, I confirmed last week with Valero that they're not buying any Russian crude and haven't been. And you've seen 
one cargo that Shell said it had bought became a public relations disaster for Shell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So although it's taking time to feed through, uh, and the sanctions, is, you know, more more Russian sanctions on oil specifically from the U.S. has panicked the market. The reality is it's already done. We're we're not buying Russian oil. Great point. Let me ask you a final crucial question as an investor. What do you want these companies to do? Do you want them to stick with the discipline that they have promised, even at the expense of political blowback? Would you like to see them, for almost patriotic reasons, do as much as they can to pump and, you know, do CapEx now to meet this objective? I'm just curious, what's that cost benefit for you? Yeah, I find it curious the way people treat the oil industry. You know, it's like at the, at the lows, they have zero friends. And, and, you know, suddenly it's like, why aren't you pumping more at the highs? And, you know, it's it's not as simple as that. It's, as we've said, very difficult just to add the barrels anyway. There's no people in Midland, Texas available, certainly not any engineers. And if you were to say to them, pump more, they would probably just go and out-compete the next-door rig to buy the guys from the next-door rib because there's just simply no one available. It's not like we have spare capacity here and we're deliberately not producing it. No, what we want is for them to be very disciplined in their capex. And if there is really clear proof that we're going to sustain a, a much higher level of oil prices, which obviously seems to be the case, uh, then we can start thinking about investing at a higher level. And the government should, you know, facilitate the development of pipelines in a stable regulatory environment, which they frankly just haven't done. Would you? So, you know, it's, it's, not, that, it's, not, it's not that complicated what needs to be done. Well, and I take your point. You want to know if we're going to stay at these prices before they commit, you know, to any spending projects. Would you like to see the price of crude oil lower than it is today? Uh, yeah, sure. Than, than where we are right now, I think it's too painful, particularly for emerging markets. You know, our our big concern about where the administration has been going isn't so much American consumers, quite frankly. It's the developing world. You know, what we're talking about here is uh, energy security for for the poor of the world. You know, what the big, the big elements of this crisis is the wheat price and and the effect of hugely high prices on very poor people. And that, by the way, also applies within the U.S. You know, it's very regressive when the gasoline price gets very high. It damages the poor much more than the rich. So, you know, for John Kerry to be flying on his G5 telling us you should use less energy is, you know, frankly offensive to me. And what we should be doing here is ensuring, uh, you know, energy security for the poor, um, you know, in a way that 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 really means that you need to develop pipelines and, and oil and gas. Yeah. Uh, the moral case for fossil fuels is what we call it. No ad hominem attacks here. Paul. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Paul Sankey joining me from Sankey Oil Research. Speaking Thank of oil, don't miss an exclusive interview with the CEO of Chenier next hour around 2.30 p.m. on Power Lunch. Still ahead, the utility spider ETF, the XLU, is up 10% in the past 10 days or so. Now its biggest holding is getting an upgrade after being one of the worst performers this year. We'll tell you what that is next. Plus, Visa and MasterCard both down about 20% in a month after suspending operations in Russia. We'll tell you what they're doing and what it means for customers around the world. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. The UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. We were down 710 points at the lows about an hour ago. We're a little less than 600 points down right now. The Dow's actually outperforming. It's down 1.8%. The S&P down 2.2%. The Nasdaq down 2.5%. Across the sectors, utilities and energy uh, were the only sectors or still are the only sectors in the green. Consumer discretionary and financials are your worst performers. 3% drop for financials. Don mentioned the flattening yield curve again off the top. Drilling down on the financials, the pain is across all areas of the sector. Amex, Block, Wells Fargo, B of A, all the biggest laggards today with about 6% declines. And the semiconductors also getting hit today. Micron, Qualcomm, OnSemi, and NVIDIA, those are showing declines of anywhere between 4 and almost 7%. All but two components of the SMH are more than 20% off their highs. NVIDIA down nearly 40% from its record high. Discretionary names like Ralph Lauren and PVH, the parent company of Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger, Biggest laggards in the S&P today, PVH especially, Wedbush downgrading both of these names to neutral, saying demand in Europe could fall after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They say PVH is the retailer with the highest European penetration at 45 percent, while Ralph Lauren's exposure about 28 percent. Both stocks down big since Russia's invasion, as you can see there. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to affect civilian areas, President Zelensky is telling ABC News that he will not accept ultimatums from Moscow. But he also says that there are possible solutions to satisfy Moscow's demands on NATO, Crimea, and the separatist regions in Ukraine. But Zelensky says that President Putin needs to start a dialogue instead of living in what he calls an informational bubble without oxygen. The third round of talks in Belarus have ended, with a Zelensky advisor saying that some progress has been made on humanitarian corridors. Some Ukrainian refugees from the besieged city of Mariupol are arriving in Russia by bus with hopes of returning eventually. Ukrainian and Western officials are criticizing Moscow's provision of escape routes that lead to Russia and Belarus. And on the news at 7 Eastern tonight, a live report from Warsaw on the growing humanitarian crisis as refugees flood into Poland. And as Ukrainians are leaving, some foreign volunteer fighters and medics from the U.S., U.K., and Canada are arriving at the train station in Lviv. A former U.S. Army engineer who had been studying archaeology in Rome wants to use his paramedic training to help. Take a listen. I'm a little bit nervous, to be honest, but at the same time, like it's not about me, it's about the people that are suffering there. So coming out, when you see the images, you see the people that are here right now, you understand that it's, you're not suffering this more about them. Kelly, he says he's been trying to stay positive by thinking about the hopeful contributions he hopes to make. So I can only imagine. Rahel, thank you so Great. much. Rahel Solomon. Coming up, we look at what impact the Ukraine war could have on the U.S. economy and inflation. Steve Leisman joins us with the latest rapid update. Dow's down 565. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Economists are trying to gauge what impact the Ukraine war will have on the U.S. economy and on inflation to figure out which force the Fed needs to confront right now. 
price pressures or slowing growth? Steve Leisman joins us with a CNBC rapid update. Steve? Yeah, how about both, Kelly? That first pass highly contingent on what happens with oil prices shows the U.S. will grow more slowly with higher inflation. Europe's economy could flirt near recession and Russia will plunge into a deep double-digit decline. The CNBC rapid update showing U.S. growth accelerating. Still, they're banking on this to 3.5% of the second quarter from an estimate of 1.9 in the first as the U.S. recovers from the Omicron slowdown. But the second quarter estimate, it is down by 0.8 percentage points from our survey in February. Second half outlook also fell and the full year GDP dropping by a modest 0.3 percentage points still at 3.2 percent above trend. Forecasters caution, though, with oil prices surging to 117 a barrel, risks to their estimates are all tilted to the downside. J.P. Morgan, in fact, writing the consequences of a complete shutoff of Russia's 4.3 million barrels per day of oil exports to the U.S. and Europe would be dramatic. The CMC rapid update finding economists marking up their inflation outlook for PCE inflation by 1.7 percentage points this quarter to 5.3 at an annual rate, building in a slower decline than previously thought. And finally, for Europe, both J.P. Morgan and Barclays reducing growth by about a percentage point each one, with J.P. Morgan penciling in zero for euro area growth this quarter, but 3.2 percent for the full year. So they're kind of counting on this going away. Not for Russia, though. The Institute for International Finance says Russian growth will drop by 15 percent, double the drop in the great financial crisis in Russia. Kelly? Wow, that is a huge hit. What about the ruble, Steve? It's continuing to fall before our eyes. Yeah, free fall here, Kelly, for sure. Uh, what you see here is a, a quote right now of 146, but I'm seeing actual quotes out there quite a bit. Now, what's interesting about the trade today, if you look at the line, look to the left and see the other days and those declines that happened during the day. That would appear to indicate from my old days in Russia, the central bank perhaps coming in. But that straight up line today kind of tells me maybe they didn't, although right now it looks like maybe they did 134. It just dropped too hard to know. But it looked like it looks like overall the Russian central bank is allowing the ruble to fall. And we don't know what would happen, Kelly, if the Russian stock market opened, creating that massive demand that would happen for um, uh, Russian uh, for U.S. dollars once the Russian stock market opens, it is still closed. Yeah, great point. Steve, thank you. It's good to see you today, our Steve Leisman. The fallout sure. from the Ukraine war sending stocks here sharply lower again today. My next guest says it'll be tough for the major indices to get ahead in the near term, but that despite volatility, pockets of opportunities will emerge where spending and growth should occur. For more, I'm joined by Nancy Pryle. She is co-CEO and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management. Nancy, it's good to see you. So where do you see uh, the most promising growth without the biggest inflation problems? Right. So we think that we want to continue to focus on those areas of the domestic economy that will benefit from the spending that has already begun and that should continue. What I mean by that are the areas of reshoring of manufacturing, factory automation, the use of technology to solve problems. But we want to do that in a way that pays much closer attention to valuation than perhaps we needed to do over the last number of years. So that's the key thing for you, valuation right now. Where are you seeing the best opportunities? Where should people be looking? 
Right. Uh, let me answer the valuation question first. We think it's that combination of growth and value that's really the most important right now. And we think that the conversation will turn from a pure focus on growth versus value to really looking for growth in unexpected places. One of the areas that we really find the best opportunities is broadly in the area of industrials um, or industrial tech. Companies that are providing the products and services that will allow us to rebuild our manufacturing base in the U.S., that will allow us to achieve the goals of factory automation to continue to drive productivity and margin enhancement, um, and that are doing that in a way where if they are seeing some raw material and pricing increases, they can pass those on to their consumers, um, their industrial companies, without totally disrupting um, the inflation front. Yeah. Some of those names would be a company like Benchmark Electronics, which I see you put up on the screen. They are a um, electronic manufacturing services company. They focus on healthcare. They focus on defense. They focus on industrial automation, et cetera. Sells at about 16 times earnings, pays a dividend, solidly profitable. That's the kind of company we really like in this environment. And the story you're describing is one I think a lot of people would happily get on board with. Benchmark is one of the names Applied Industrials Technologies, AIT, Zuora, ZUO, yep. AlphaTech, ATEC. These are not everyday names. Is that That's on purpose? That is on purpose. Again, we think that there is an advantage to be looking for growth that's not already well recognized in the market. As I said earlier, valuations are becoming very important in this environment. We think that the impact, the longer term impact of the increased geopolitical conflict could be that overall market multiples compress versus what we've seen as an expansion in market multiples over really the last 30 years. That means you need to pay attention to how much you're paying for growth. And so if you can find companies that are benefiting from the strong growth themes we all understand, but are not yet discovered by other investors, you can benefit both from their earnings growth as well as the subsequent modest PE expansion they might get as they get discovered. All right, Nancy, thank you so much for some key ideas in the industrial space people might want to look for right now. We appreciate it. Thank you. Nancy Pryle of Essex. Ahead, just in time for the post-pandemic travel season, jet fuel prices are now at their highest level since 2014. What will it mean for ticket prices and for profit margins? The spike comes as United, Delta, American, and JetBlue hit 52-week lows today. United down more than 10%. Back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Oil prices spiking to a 14-year high, briefly topping $130 a barrel amid the ongoing war in Ukraine. That is sending airline stocks sharply lower as it pushes jet fuel prices higher. Phil LeBeau has more on the fallout for the airline sector. Phil? Kelly, you want to see a chart that gives airline executives heartburn? Check this out. We're talking about jet fuel in the last year, up 72 percent. And remember, outside of labor, this is the biggest expense for the airlines. And now, as you look at jet fuel over the last 10 years, you've got to go back to 2014. That is the last time that we saw jet fuel prices at this level. No surprise, as the price has gone up, We've seen the pressure increase on the airline stocks. You mentioned about United being down more than 10% today. We're looking at 52-week lows really for all of the majors across the board. They are all under pressure today. An ugly day any way you look at it. And then you've got American. It was downgraded today by Seaport going from a buy down to a neutral. What can you expect from the airline stocks, let's say, over the next couple of weeks? We are in guidance season. I would say, Kelly, within 
I wouldn't be surprised. But within the next week, two weeks, we will likely hear from a number of these airlines as they get a better sense of what's happening with jet fuel prices in terms of, hey, we're going to bring down our numbers for the first quarter, at least. I can't imagine how frustrated they and investors must be to have them finally come out from the pandemic only to face this oncoming train. So should we expect them to raise ticket prices? I mean, can that help offset if the consumer is willing to pay up for travel right now? Well, the consumer will pay up to an extent, and they're already raising fares, but it's not going to be enough to offset a 72% increase in jet fuel prices from a year ago. So you will see some higher fares, but certainly not enough for them to say, oh, yeah, we can still make the uh, projections that we had out there for the first quarter and the second quarter. Well, it's good to have you here to share that grim news, Phil. Thank you so much, our Phil about today. Still ahead with global energy prices rising, my next guest says this clean energy stock is well positioned to benefit. We have the name next. And take a quick look at the social names as well. Snap, Meta, Pinterest, all lower. All three of these names down more than 35% this year. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The energy complex is shifting in ways we haven't seen in years. Gas prices, gasoline prices are at 2008 highs. Heating oil futures are at an all-time high. Gas oil at record highs, crude crossing $130 a barrel just in the past 24 hours, and a big jump in some solar stocks as well today to point out. Joining me now is Sophie Karp. She's equity research analyst at KeyBank. Sophie, it's good to have you. And how do these price hikes across the energy complex feed into the companies that you cover? How are they going to be dealing with them and or passing them along to consumers? Hey, Kelly, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a good question. It's uh, unprecedented territory. The energy prices, like you pointed out, are at the multi-year highs. And, uh, you know, I, I frankly like both of my renewable names and my utility names here. And the renewable names are clearly getting more competitive. We know that they get more competitive on a relative basis when the energy markets are strong. That is because, you know, renewable electricity gets more price competitive with fossil fuel generated electricity in this type of situations. So I think most of the names that I cover that have robust pipelines and are able to monetize these trends in the near term are well positioned and the jumps and valuations that we are seeing uh, justify this especially considering that we're coming out from a pretty deep sell-off in the space uh, in late 2021 and early 2022. And Um, let me just uh, jump in there. I know that NextEra is one of your favorites. You just put it to overweight. But as you mentioned, the stock is down significantly since Jan 1. Why is that? Yeah, I think that Nextera really got caught up in the trend of rotating out of growth names when inflation was the biggest fear, right, and uh, rotating out of renewable energy trend. Uh, and I think that, frankly, is, is unjustified at this point. We think Nextera is one of the best stocks to own given the current backdrop. You're getting the benefit of both the stability of the regulated utility, which is roughly a half of the company, and also the leverage to the strong energy market cycle via the renewables business. Um, so given Nextera's renewables pipeline, they're actually positioned to take advantage of strength near term and on the utility side right you're getting one of the strongest domestic utilities with a multi-year rate plan in place and rate escalation linked to treasuries which is a fairly unique feature by the way in the u.s yeah um you know and so you know in with oil prices being where they are there's a there's got to be a real fear of demand destruction eventually and some kind of recessionary environment building up eventually in the market and being a utility where this anchored in this stable environment is i think is helpful and uh so you basically get in the stable foundation of the utility growth and utility operation in Florida. And, uh, and at the same time, you monetize in the upside in the energy markets. Yeah. It's, 
arch, it's liquid, it's clean, it's arguably one of the strongest management teams in the industry, and has been largely left out of the recent rally in the energy name. So we think it's unjustified, and I think it's the time is right to own the stock. And it helps that natural gas in the U.S. has been relatively contained, even with the spikes that we're seeing elsewhere. Obviously, as we get into the summer, people have to pay for AC. If that price goes up, that could be a little bit more of a problem for them. But overall, would you say when people are looking to the utility space, which has performed well lately, that you think they should lean more towards those with a good renewable pipeline as opposed to those who are more reliant on, you know, nat gas or traditional fossil fuels? Uh, I think they having a renewable pipeline and renewable mix helps. And I think the whole argument about fuel diversity and like nuclear energy in the U.S. is going to regain momentum here because of this environment. Right to your point, net gas has been more stable, but it is elevated versus historical levels. And this is where, again, Nextera, FPL in Florida has uh, close to 30 percent of their generation from renewables and nuclear. So I think that is also something to look out for, for sure, like what the, what is in the energy mix. Yeah, for sure. Sophie, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Sophie Karp of KeyBank, sure. again, with an outperform on NextEra. Still ahead, the list of companies taking action against Russia is growing. You can see many of them right here. And the payment players just stepped up their game. We will tell you how next. Welcome back, everybody. The list of companies limiting or halting services in Russia. It's growing with the payment players making another move over the weekend. Kate Rooney joins us now with more. Kate? Kelly, the major payment companies had been complying with sanctions, but Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and PayPal took it a step further over the weekend, suspending all operations in Russia. The move really cuts off individual Russians from making card payments overseas or using e-commerce. Cards issued outside of Russia won't work at local merchants or ATMs. And a lot of the cards in Russia are what they call co-badged, meaning they work with Visa and MasterCard, as well as Russia's local payment network, NSPK. So those cards will still work using Russia's own payment network. But I'm told this is really unprecedented for the card companies. Visa and MasterCard are seen historically as apolitical. Visa and MasterCard do get about 4% of revenue from Russia. I'm told the revenue hit for PayPal and Amex is de minimis, but it could have big implications for the global payments landscape. In the short term, Russian banks are already saying that they'll switch to that local network I mentioned, NSPK or UnionPay. That's the card processing network based in China. Long term, it could boost that growing card processing ecosystem in Asia. Kelly. Kate, would crypto be an alternative in Russia? So that has been one of the big questions. Um, It could be as more of a store of value. It's seen as sort of sanction proof in terms of holding it. But you cannot really transact or get it out of a wallet right now because of A, sanctions. The exchanges are on high alert, so you really can't transport Bitcoin off of an exchange and use it for any sort of payment. So the thought is that if people already own Bitcoin, it's a way for people to store and hold on to their wealth. It's not really a way for people to spend money or use it as an internal payment system, not to mention Russia has been one of the least friendly areas when it comes to to the crypto industry. Uh, So not looking like an alternative internally right now. And we mentioned earlier, Kate, that their stocks, Visa, MasterCard, they're down considerably over the past month, but their revenue exposure here is fairly limited. So should what to what do we think that decline is owed to? So one of the the open questions is sort of the settlement. I was talking to an analyst this morning who said that it's still unclear if they're because this happened so quickly, Visa and MasterCard are really seen as the middleman. So say somebody went and bought you know, a $10,000 watch and uh, that that payment is was sort of cut off 
there's a question over, does Visa and MasterCard have exposure to sort of the settlement in between? And so I think there's still <laughs> uh, still a thought that, that Visa and MasterCard could have a little bit more exposure than just that revenue hit. So people are sort of waiting and seeing yeah. maybe at the end of the month if they come out with more in terms of what it actually means for the bottom line. But settlement could be another issue that analysts are seem to be a bit worried about here. Great point. Kate, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our Kate Rooney. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.